Chapter twenty six, section one and two of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Caron. The Student's Roman Empire, part two, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter twenty six, The Principate of Hadrian, section one and two. Section 1. The Accession of Hadrian and the Character of His Reign Notwithstanding his advanced age, Trajan had gone forth on his great eastern expedition, without having taken the precaution of settling the succession to the Principate by adopting a son. He had indeed made it clear enough by various marks of favor that he designed P. Milus Hydranius, his relative, to be his successor perhaps confident that he had still many years to live. He wished to postpone as long as possible the act of adoption. I did not care for the notion of delegating to another any portion of the supreme power, or perhaps he may have thought that even without the usual measure of adoption, the succession of Hadrian was sufficiently assured, and may have been willing to leave the Senate to elect as princeps, without any apparent constraint, one who is not the son of an Augustus or a Caesar, there is certainly little reason to suppose that he had not himself decided on his successor, and that he looked forward to testing the merits of possible candidates. In the Parthian expedition he had already shown such favor to Hadrian that to have preferred another would have inevitably led to civil war and Trahan could not have failed to foresee the result. In any case, he found himself in the presence of death, before he had formally declared Miss Will on this important question. Plotina, who was a warm supporter of Hadrian's interests, seemed to have induced the dying emperor to sign at the last moment a letter of adoption, or at least a signify his consent, was a fiction contrived by Plotina, whether genuine or not, the letter reached Hadrian at Antioch on August ninth, two days before the news of Trahan's death arrived, and there can be little doubt that it represented Trahan's real wishes. The family C.F. Hadrian belonged originally to Hadria, a municipality of Paisnum, but had settled in the Roman colony of Italioa. His father, Hadrianus Afrer, was a first cousin of Trahan. He entered early Euxum, the usual official career, and after the Vigintivirate, became a legendary tribune. Under Trahan, he was promoted to be Quaster, 101 A.D., and tribune of the people, 105 A.D. Earl he impressed, Plotina showed marked favor to him, and through her influence permitted to contract a marriage with Julia Sabina, the granddaughter of Marciana, Trahan's sister. As Trahan had no children, this alliance was naturally to be significant. In the second Dacian, War Hadrian commanded a legion, and in recognition of his services, the emperor presented him with a diamond ring, which he had himself received from Nerva. He became praetor in due course of time, and in 108 A.D. was elected as a suffect consul. About the same time he was appointed to Legatus of Lower Pannonia. After the death of Licinus Sira, his influence with Trahan 
doubtless increased. He took part in the eastern expedition, and in 117 A.D. was appointed to Legates of Syria, with an extraordinary military command, during the emperor's absence, and in the same year was a second time consul. On receiving the news of Trajan's death, Hadrian was proclaimed imperator by the soldiers, having secured their allegiance by promising them a donative of double the usual amount. He then wrote a modest letter to the Senate, asking, as the adopted son of Trajan, for their recognition and excusing the unconstitutional action of the soldiers, in acknowledging him as emperor before he had been elected by the Senate. Although there were many members of the Senate adverse to Hadrian, no opposition was organized against his claim. His respectful letter produced a favorable impression, and the various powers which belonged to the princeps were duly conferred on him. Hadrian had received as a boy an education in Greek letters, perhaps at Athens, and he showed such a decided leaning to Greek life and thought that he was jestingly called the Greekling. But his interest in things not Roman went further than Greece. He was attracted by the antiquities, the mysteries and the romance of the East, and studied Oriental philosophies and religions with curiosity. He was, in fact, a cosmopolitan, and liked to place himself in touch with all the various races and creeds and institutions which had been gathered together in the complex of the Roman Empire. He was eminently susceptible of new ideas, and must have been impatient of the narrow prejudices of the aristocracy of home. It may be readily imagined that such a man could not win the sympathy of the Senate, and though the nobles had to cloak their feelings during his lifetime, their antipathy expressed itself after his death in detraction and calumny. The note of his character was a certain restless curiosity. He desired to see all that was to be seen, to know all that was to be known, to do all that was to be done. He visited all the provinces of the empire, and in each province he was as much a sightseer as an administrator. He wrote poetry, attempted painting, acquainted himself with all the systems of philosophy, it accorded with his character that he had an extravagant passion for the excitement of the chase. The personality of this searcher out of all curiosities is indicated in his countenance, as we see it, in his numerous busts. The head is bent a little, as if to catch every sound. The eyes and mouth suggest the quickness and liveliness of an intellect determined that nothing shall escape it. The type of face is neither Roman nor yet Greek. In the gallery of imperial busts, his is the first marked by a beard. Whether he wore it, as some said, to disguise a scar, or whether it was characteristic of the Greekling, it may be regarded as an outward sign of a new type of emperor. Hadrian had his faults and forbiles qualities, although he took wide views as a statesman and a thinker. He was not above petty ambitions, Although he was eminently tolerant, he was not superior to feeling jealousy at the merits of men who followed as their special calling pursuits in which he engaged as a diligente. He was suspicious and distrustful of those who surrounded him, and naturally was not able to awaken their confidence or engage their affection. The rhetorican Fronto says that he regarded Hadrian rather as a god to be propitiated than as a man to be loved. Hadrian was a statesman of great ability, but by no means of transcendent genius. 
Indeed, at this time, there was little scope for a man of genius. What makes him so remarkable, aid his reign so unique, is the circumstance that he embodied and represented in his own person the tendency of the period and revealed and developed those tendencies in his policy. It rarely happens that the most typical man of an age is selected by destiny to be a sovereign. It happened in the case of Hadrian, and his reign derives much of its peculiar interest from this coincidence. He was not a military monarch, and here, conspicuously, he was in touch with this age. The Roman world wanted peace and rest. Men did not yearn for conquest, and the military policy of Trajan, however plausible it may have seemed from a theoretical point of view, however necessary it may have been, up to a certain point, was not in harmony with the spirit of his time. In this respect, Hadrian marked his position clearly at the outset. The first important act of his reign was the surrender of the three new eastern provinces, which Trajan had annexed, Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Assyria. The new emperor thus declared that he regarded Trajan's oriental expedition as a huge mistake that he definitely abandoned the project of extending the empire eastward, and that he recurred to the policy of Augustus. He may be questioned whether it might not have been wiser to retain Armenia, while abandoning Mesopotamia and Assyria. Dislike of Trajan's war policy as a whole may have carried Hadrian too far in his reaction. It is even said that have he contemplated the surrender of Dacia, but if so, he was wise enough to abandon the idea. Dacia, in which a large number of Roman colonists had taken up their abode, was in quite a different position from the annexations beyond the Euphrates, where no Roman settlements had yet been made, of resigning Arabia, Trajan's other new province. There was no question. This first act of Hadrian struck the keynote of his reign, and inaugurated that remarkable period of nearly half a century in which the Roman world enjoyed a measure of peace and happiness, which it had never enjoyed before, and was never to enjoy again. The thought was beginning to force itself on people, more or less consciously, that men were not made for the state, but that the state was made for men. And Hadrian's policy expressed and realized this thought. Trajan's had been tempted to make the extension of the empire and military glory ends in themselves. Hadrian regarded the defense of the frontiers and the maintenance of the army merely as means to the prosperity of his subjects. He fully recognized the necessity of maintaining a strong military force, and of being prepared to fight in case of need, and he devoted himself to the reform of the military service, closely connected with this view of the state, and at the same time characteristic of his cosmopolitan temper was Hadrian's interest in the provinces the importance of the welfare of the provinces had been recognized by julius caesar and had been always a political principle under the empire but hadrian sympathized with the provincials more thoroughly than any of his predecessors and really felt that the provinces were not made merely to serve home in italy lie was himself less at home in rome than in any part of his empire and hardly a third part of his reign of twenty-one years was spent on Italian soil. He saw that personal acquaintance 
on the part of the ruler with the affairs of each province was requisite for a sound administration and his journeys through the provinces are a unique and striking feature of his reign his other great work was the creation of a civil service he must not fail to note that in the period of peace and prosperity which was inaugurated by hadrian and continued by his two next successors a great social and spiritual change of deep significance for the future of the empire and also for the future of the world was being accomplished the process was reliant and almost escapes our observation but the results are clear the principle of humanity as opposed to roman exclusiveness was becoming widely recognized and a spirit of cosmopolitanism was taking possession of the world the way was being prepared for the diffusion of christianity this new spirit was injurious to the power of rome but advantageous for the future development of europe it helped on the decline of the empire but it was also the beginning of the transformation of the ancient into the modern world hadrian is the first great representative of this new spirit the last months of the year 117 a d were occupied with ordering the affairs of the east the parthian question was settled as has been already said by unveiling trahan's conquests abandoning the cause of parthamatis and recognizing king Krosos. in order to retain the new conquests it would have been necessary to increase the army and the financial condition of the empire would not have omitted such a step without an increase of taxation moreover under trahan's military reign too little attention had been paid to eternal administration these considerations alone were sufficient to move hurion to adopt a totally different policy from that of his predecessor the danger of extending the frontier may have also been brought home to him by the reports which arrived of disturbances breaking out in remote corners of the realm the britons in the far north the samaritans on the danube the moors in the west were all saving signs of rebellion while the rising of the jews in palestine and libya not yet completely arrayed was in itself an adverse comment on oriental expeditions hadrian probably visited palestine and egypt himself to hasten the suppression of the jewish revolt which was carried out by his able officer q martinus turbo he apologized catilius severus to the post of legatus of syria which he had occupied himself before his elevation to the principate he removed lucius quietus from the governorship of judea and sent him to his native land mauritania apparently in order to quell a revolt which was breaking out among his countrymen but lucius who was by no means well disposed to the new emperor and disliked the change of policy showed no energy in crushing the movement or perhaps encouraged it at all events hadrian found it necessary to send turbo who had already suppressed the jews to suppress the moors also and we are told that he disarmed lucius quietus hadrian travelled by way of Illyrium to rome which he reached early in 118 a d he was favourably received by the senate to which he now renewed in person the respectful overtures which he had already made by letter the title pater patrix was offered to him but he refused it on the ground that augustus had received it at a late period of his reign and did not accept it until 128 a d 
he celebrated the Parthian triumph of Trajan, the image of the dead emperor being born in the triumphal car. Hadrian was not long at Rome before he had to hurry away to the Danube to meet a Samaritan invasion, and during his absence his throne was threatened by a con piracy in which four men of great distinctly were implicated. The leader was a consular named Avidus Niginus, whom the empire seems to have regarded with special favor, and perhaps intended to choose as his successor in the Principate, besides another consular, Panibulus Celsus, two officers of high military reputation, Cornelius Palma, the conqueror of Arabi, and Lucius Quietus, who had ere eighty displayed a disloyal spirit in Maretta Ia, took part in the plot. The implication of these two generals suggests that dissatisfaction was felt in military circles at the peace policy of the new emperor. The intention of the conspirators was to kill Hadrian when he was either hunting or performing a sacrifice, be it in the plot, was discovered, and the senate showed their zeal and loyalty by ordering the four conspirators to be put to death. When the news of the affair reached Hadrian, he paced the conduct of affairs on the Danube frontier in the hands all his trusted officer, Marcius Turbo, had hastened back to Rome, August. He regretted the execution of the culprits, which was an unpopular act, and although the Senate had acted without consulting him, he was blamed for it to dissipate the feelings of alarm which the occurrence had caused, and to show that terrorism was not to be the policy of his reign. He voluntarily took an oath never to pass sentence of death on a senator, as Trajan had done before him. During the next years, Hadrian seems to have devoted himself to internal reforms in Rome and Italy. In 119 AD, he was consul for the third and last time, and in the same year he undertook a journey through the southern Italy in 121 AD, having laid the foundation stone of the Temple of Rome and Venus, April 21st. He started on his first great journey through the provinces, as he intended to be absent for a considerable time. It was necessary to leave the control of Rome in trustworthy hands. The safety of the city lay with the commanders of the Praetorian Guards. Hadrian had not full confidence in Atanius and Similis, the two prefects who were in office at his accession. Atanius had given him support at the critical moment when his installation as princeps was doubtful, and on that account might have proved presumptuous, while Simulus was a man of independent ideas. Accordingly, they were removed, and Q. Martius Turbo, along with C. Septicius Clarus, appointed in their stead. Hadrian undertook two great journeys through the provinces. The first began in spring 121 A.D., and ended with his return to Rome at the end of 126 A.D. The second began in spring 129 A.D. and ended with his return to Rome early in 134 A.D. On the first occasion, he visited almost all the provinces of the empire, both western and eastern, but on the second occasion, he only visited the eastern. This was probably due to the outbreak of the Jewish rebellion, which recalled him to Judea as he was entracing his path to the west. 131 through 132 A.D., so that at this point his second long absence from home ceases to be a provincial tour. Besides these two great journeys, he undertook in the interval between them 
a lesser journey to the African provinces, 128 A.D., the exact route of his first journey, is not in all respects certain, but it seems to have been as follows. Having made a progress through eastern Gaul, and probably visited Lugundinum, he proceeded to the province of Upper Germany, and thence along the northern frontier, and Resetia, and Noricum, into Pandonia, returning doubtless by a different route through these provinces. He reached the Rhine again, proceeded the lower Germany, and passing through the laurel of the Batavians, crossed over to Britain, 122 A.D., Having remained there for some months, he returned to Gaul and traveled through the western regions of that country to Spain, where he visited Taraco. A revolt of the Moors induced him to visit Mauritania, though this perhaps was not part of his program, and thence he went on to Africa and possibly to Libya. Crossing over to Asia Minor, he first visited the cities on the coast and then traveled through the interior to the Euphrates, 123 A.D., Returning by the coast of the Exuine, he traversed Pontius and Berthiana and Bithynia and crossed over to Thyrus. Once advancing through Macedonia, he received successively Epirus and Thessaly. In autumn, 125 A.D., he arrived at Athens, where he spent the winter and spring and made a tour in the Peloponnesus in the following summer, whence he returned to Rome, taking Sicily on the way, 126 A.D., his second journey began by a second visit to Athens, where he spent another winter, 129 through 130 A.D. Then he sailed to the south coast of Asia Minor, and landing in Syria or Lycia, traveled through Placidia and Cilicia into Syria, reaching Antioch by June. In the same summer, he visited Palmyria, Judea, and Arabia, and proceeded in autumn to Egypt where he spent the greater part of the year. Returning to the latter part of 131 A.D. to Syria, whence he set out for the west, Phi has been recalled by the Jewish revolt and spent two years on the scene of warfare. These imperial visits may in some cases have been burdensome and expensive to the provincials at the time, but there can be no doubt that they conduced to the prosperity of the subject lands. The emperor saw with his own eyes the condition and needs of each province, and also the exact importance of each in relation to the rest of the empire. We cannot trace all that he did in the correction of abuses, or in furthering the economical interests of the land which he visited, but we know how he tried to secure the indispensable condition of peaceful development, namely the satisfy of the emperor against invaders. Hadrian never lost sight of this end. His care in providing for it was exhibited in two ways. He introduced a number of vital reforms into the army and the military system. He developed, with more consistency than any emperor before him, the method of defending the frontiers by artificial means. The military reforms of Hadrian went into the minutest details, and he may be considered the originator of the military system of the later empire. His changes affected both tactics and discipline. His great reform in tactics was the introduction of the phalanx, not exactly the Macedonian phalanx, but an improved form. The necessity of superseding the old legionary battle array seems to have been proved in recent warfare. Hadrian directed all his officers 
to study carefully the tactics and the MS of the barbarians, Parthians and Armenians in the rest, Sarmatians beyond the Danube, Celts and Britain. He also introduced oriental armor and heavily armed cavalry. His Batavian squadrons were so well drilled that they could swim across rivers in panoply. Improvements were made in the military engines with a view to facilitating the rapid motion of the army. Hadrian found that the discipline of the camp had degenerated, and he spent the greatest pains in restoring it, and made it stricter than ever. He increased the number of centurions, and only allowed those to be appointed, who were of strong body and good character. He admitted none to the legionary tribunate, who were not of mature age. Leaves of absence were rarely granted, and everything that, that could have an enervating effect on the soldiers was removed from the camps. But notwithstanding his strictness, he was very popular with the men, and there was not, not a oe mutiny throughout his peaceful reign. This was due to the fact that he shared with the soldiers their exercises and privations whenever he visited the camps and required of them to undergo no hardships which he was not ready to undergo himself his dress was severely simple his repast consisted of the same plain food lard cheese and sour wine as that of the legionaries themselves on the march he used to walk or ride in full armor and bareheaded amid the snows of caledonia or beneath the hot sun of egypt and never made use of the vehicle he concerned himself with every detail of military life he used to visit the ambulances every day used to attend to the commissariat and inspect the arms dress and baggage of the soldiers on coins he is often represented as addressing his legions at lambasis in africa where he founded a new camp of which the presturium or general's quarters still stands a pedestal has been found on which is ascribed a speech which he delivered to legion the third augusta he praises the soldiers for their performance of the most difficult exercises for executing in a single day works which would employ others for a week for their sham battles and other achievements other no emperor was the army in more efficient condition than under hadrian in regard to the fleet Hadrian introduced the regulation that all the marines should possess ius latinum. Thus no Roman citizen, whether Italian or provincial, could serve in the fleet. The service was only open to those who possessed Latin rights, or those who possessed neither Roman nor Latin rights. The latter received iva latinum on entering the service. End of chapter 26, sections 1 and 2, recording by Chris Caron, Ham Lake, Minnesota.